Hi, my name is Trevin Osborne, and I'm the executive pastor at the Azure Hills Church. So glad you decided to join us in worship online from wherever around the world you may be tuning in. This morning, we're continuing our series to the book of Mark with a focus on chapter 9, verses 38 to 41. I've enlisted the help of some friends and family members to help us unpack and unfold this story. We're going to begin with my wife, Shari, and my nine-year-old son, Luke. In the Bible, it says, Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. So look what so, you think that verse means. Mm, it means, so, so the disciples were saying that, saying that someone was doing miracles in God's, in, in Jesus' name. They, the disciples tried to stop him because they did not want to include this man. Yeah, you know, it doesn't feel very nice to be excluded, right? Yeah. Yeah. Didn't you say you have a story? Yeah. When I was in fourth grade, the grade that you're going into next year, mm -hmm. uh, I had this experience where my classmates and I were playing this game where you decide what each person's future is going to be Ooh, like. Fortune telling. Yeah. And then. So this one kid, they were telling his fortune and they were telling him what car he was going to drive, what house he was going to live in. And then it came to who he was going to marry. And they told him, oh, you're going to marry Shari. And he said, ew, I don't want to marry charcoal. Yeah. And it made me feel really bad because he was making fun of the color of my skin, right? That I look like charcoal. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah. And all the other kids started laughing and they thought it was so funny. And I just started laughing too because I didn't <laughs> want to feel excluded. But that felt really, really sad in that moment. Man, that's a crazy story. I'm sorry that happened to you. Yeah, well, that's why Daddy and I try very hard to make sure you and Zeke understand that it's not nice to exclude other people, that we want to make our circle of influence as large as possible so that as many people as possible can fit in because that's what Jesus is trying to say in that story, that we should be including people and making sure they're a part of our group and not finding ways to keep people out and exclude them. Man, that is pretty good advice in yeah. the Bible. Woohoo! Thank you so much, Shari and Luke, for sharing that with us. And I kind of feel like the sermon should be over now. You did such a great job talking about what the core of this passage is about. But I hope you're interested now and it whetted your appetite to reflect even further and a little bit deeper. You know, what I find so troubling about this story is the attitude of the disciples. Here they come across people that are casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they try and stop them. These are people that are doing good. They're trying to bring healing and hope and freedom to people. And the disciples are more concerned about the fact that they're not part of their inner group. And somehow, how could they be possibly doing this? Why would they have this spirit and attitude? If we're honest with ourselves, this desire, this impulse to exclude others has been a part of human history. We see it all over the world and all over the place. And why is it that we have this desire, this impulse to exclude other people? We do it today based on race or wealth or where, you're, where you were born or what language you speak or how much education you have or, or what you believe. 
we exclude other people. Why do we do this? I think if we actually look at the verses before, verse 38 to 41, we can begin to understand a little bit, at least why the disciples did it, that I think still applies for us today. Starting in verse 30, we find that the disciples and Jesus are going to travel from Galilee to Capernaum. And Jesus predicts that he's going to be killed, and then he's going to raise, be raised from the dead a few days later. And the disciples don't understand what Jesus is talking about, but they're too afraid to ask him or say anything about it. Now, when we get, when they finally get to the house, we find that they were arguing about something because Jesus asked them, hey, what were you guys arguing about along the way? And they refuse to be, to say anything. They stay quiet because they were arguing about who was the greatest. None of them will admit it though, but apparently Jesus knew anyways, because in verse 35, he says that anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And then Jesus brings a child into their midst and says that everyone must welcome this child as they would Jesus. And when you welcome children, that's what you're welcoming. You're welcoming Jesus and not just Jesus, but God the Father as well. And so I think what we see here in these verses, we see that the disciples' impulse to exclude came because they believed that life was a competition for limited resources. Life was a competition for limited resources. They were competing. Who was the greatest? They wanted to be the greatest. They were competing with one another. And then they had this idea that there were limited resources that somehow only the 12 could heal in Jesus' name. But no, Jesus is trying to break them out of this mentality, out of this scarcity mentality. And I think what Jesus is trying to do is get them to believe that life is instead about collaboration, to experience the abundance of God's grace. So we're moving from competition to collaboration, and we're moving from limited resources to the abundance of God's grace. Jesus tells them, whoever wants to be first must be the last and the servant of all people. Life isn't a competition anymore. Life is about collaborating and working together to serve. And then he's, he predicts his death in the opening verses in verse 30 and 31. He predicts his death and he's reminding us and saying, look, I'm about to do something that none of you deserve. And it's about the abundance of my grace. That's what the cross is all about, isn't it? The abundance and the unlimited effect and nature of God's grace for us. You know, the cross reminds us that all of us are equal, that none of us are better than anyone else, that life is about service, life is about caring for other people, and that life is about living in the overflow and in the abundance of God's grace, not about competing. There is more than enough grace to go around. So what does it look like? to live with this new mentality? What does it look like to live in the abundance of God's grace, to collaborate instead of compete? Well, I think the first thing is we serve other people, period. Serve others, period. Jesus says in verse 35 that we are called to be the servant of all people. Not just some, but all people. But we also see in this story that we need to expand our horizons and think about who we are willing to serve with. A lot of times we only want to serve with people that think like us, that act like us, that voted like us, that look like us, that believe like us. But I think what Jesus is trying to do is expand our horizons and, and say, serve with other people, period. So if there is a need in our society, if there is a hungry person in our midst, 
we must be willing to serve with whoever also has that same desire to feed that hungry person. It doesn't matter what we believe or, or who we voted for or what we look like or where we came from. If somebody has the same desire to do good, to bring healing, to bring freedom to somebody, to, to feed them, to clothe them, to give them a house, let us work together with them. Let's get rid of this mentality that we can only work with those who are exactly like us and instead embrace the abundance of God's grace. Embrace the fact that there are other people of goodwill who maybe are a little bit different than us that also want to bring God's kingdom here to this earth. Let us serve and work together to bring that about. Danette Borchers has a great story, something she experienced as she entered into a group that was a little bit different than her and she saw how amazing it was to be embraced by this group. Let's hear Danette's story now. Growing up in Southern California, you start taking for granted all the choices that you have in the Adventist world, from academies to types of churches to attend, and really you get used to it and you think that it's that way everywhere. When I was 19, I landed in Abilene, Texas at a Christian university there. And even though it was a decent sized city, it only had one Adventist church. And it was a small one. On a good Sabbath, maybe they had 70 to 75 people there. And I was kind of skeptical at first because I didn't know if they were gonna be a conservative church, if the community was gonna be friendly, when you grow up in Southern California, you kind of hear all the, all the rumors about other states and how they view Adventists from California. So, of course, your, your anxiety level is a little bit up. However, this church has been one of the most loving and accepting church communities that I have ever seen in my life. For example, I was a young college student and I would go and attend church and that first year I didn't have a vehicle so the church actually sent out someone to come pick me up every Sabbath to attend and then they would just hug me, uh, just ask me how my week was, how classes were going, if I had a place uh, to eat Sabbath lunch, if they didn't have potluck. Most of the time they had potluck, but on the rare occasion that they did not, I always had a place for lunch. And then in subsequent years when I had a vehicle, uh, being 19, 20 and first time away from home, sometimes you know, I would forget about church and then end up there a little late or maybe not dressed in my Sabbath best. And still, even though, you know, I would come in late and sit in the last pew and kind of slink in, which is kind of hard to do in a very small church, they still saw me and they still came, a lot of the community members, and they would hug me and ask me how I was doing, how classes were, and how happy they were to see me. And you get used to a loving community and then you want to go back. And that's what I did. And I even invited a lot of my classmates that I was friends with, even though they weren't Adventist. And we would go and they would give them the same treatment too. They would hug them. They would ask them their names, uh, how they knew me, uh, if they wanted to eat lunch with them. 
And now this is Texas, so most of my friends were good Texas barbecue eating individuals and they would actually stay for Adventist vegetarian potlucks solely because they felt the love of the community there. And all of them, even if they never stepped foot in an Adventist church again, they always said that they thought that the community was very loving and I never had any embarrassment to uh, to have them come join me for uh, Sabbath services at, the, at this church. It, this church has been on my mind and recently I sent them a, a message through Facebook thanking them for always being so friendly and open, especially when I was just this rambunctious college student that sometimes would show up, sometimes wouldn't, or late. And the pastor there was very happy that his community uh, was remembered for being a loving church. And um, they hope to continue that trend and be loving and accepting of anybody who walks through their doors. And as I'm thinking about this experience that I've had and looking at my kids, seeing them grow up, I really hope and pray that wherever they land, whether it's an Adventist university with a ton of Adventist churches as choices to attend, or whether they go to a different type of university setting and only have one church to attend, I pray that that church uh, sees them, really sees them and welcomes them with open arms no matter if they're dressed appropriately, no matter if they're on time or not, no matter if they're sporadic attenders. My hope and prayer is that all these communities, that we learn to be an embracing community towards anyone that comes through our doors. Thank you, Danette, for sharing your story with us. Now, you're probably thinking that I'm suggesting that we need to forget about all our differences, pretend like we're all exactly the same, but I actually don't think that's what we need to be doing. I would suggest that we need to learn how to embrace our unique identity while not diminishing those who are different than us. And I think we've seen throughout history that people do a good job of embracing their identity, but then also usually end up diminishing other people that are different than them. So those of goodwill have taken sort of the opposite approach and they've often said, well, I don't see difference. I don't see color. We all believe the same things at the end of the day. We're not different at all. We're just all the same. And I don't think that's really helpful either because that denies the beauty of the diversity with which God has created us. And so I think we need to figure out a different way. We need to figure out how we can embrace our identity and also not diminish those who are different at the same time. So what might that look like? It's a tough thing and I have to be honest, I don't have all the answers, but I've enlisted the help of Nikki Miller and Sam Butar Butar to wrestle through this a little bit, to talk a little bit about it, because Nikki was confronted with this issue recently. And we're gonna begin by her telling her story on a Zoom call. Let's watch that now. Um, my uh, third son is currently, actually he just finished up going through some Bible study classes as he was baptized at the Camporee last summer, but Pastor um, Nick has been going through with him the, the different, you know, going through the different beliefs in Adventism. And uh, in his final lesson, he was asked to interview um, some Adventists and find out their um, 
in regards to the remnant, asking questions about the remnant and, you know, what is the remnant and how do we as Adventists view that, the remnant? <clears throat> and initially I was very uncomfortable answering the question, so I punted it to my husband. <laughs> And, and so as he's going through with Solomon and he's talking about, well, you know, the remnant has traditionally been looked at as, um, you know, those who uh, have a, a very clear understanding of the truths in the Bible and who um, adhere to the Ten Commandments. And as he's going through and he's explaining this, I'm feeling defensive and I'm jumping in and going, yes, that is a wonderful I, yes, we do. Are, we are very happy about uh, the wonderful, precious truths that we have in Adventism, but that doesn't necessarily mean he loves us any more than maybe people who, you know, maybe don't keep the Sabbath or, and as he's continuing to expound more and more, and I'm interrupting more and more and um, kind of just giving a re rebuttal or kind of rebuffing some of, some of the information that he's going through with Solomon um, and just saying, you know what, but, the, you know, he, but Jesus loves all of us. And, and yes, we do really feel um, called and, you know, special. It doesn't mean that others aren't as special. And it made me really question for a minute, you know, what we have as Adventists is a precious, is precious. And I'm grateful for that I was raised this way. And I really want to convey to my kids that it's okay to, you know, have, have a, a, a sweet confidence in who they have been raised to be, but that that doesn't necessarily mean other people aren't also as precious and prized. And um, yeah, so <laughs> that was my situation in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> a, a tough a tough conundrum. Sam, have you wrestled with some of those same things before? Yes, I have. And I want to thank uh, Nikki for bringing that up, simply because I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist family similar to Nikki. And at this point of time, you know, when we have a family, we have discussions uh, just like Nikki had with her son. And I have discussions with, with Annabelle, simply because Annabelle was baptized in a Seventh-day Adventist church. But her mom, my wife Sandra, did not grow up in a Seventh-day Adventist church. Sandra belonged to a different denomination. So the question was, if from Annabelle is if her mom had not been baptized and became Seventh-day Adventist, is she going to be safe? Because she came from a completely different denomination. Uh, is her mom belief in the same doctrine because she belongs to a different denomination? And we wrestle about this, this kind of question simply because the questions are valid. If Sandra had not been baptized, how do we respond to Annabelle's question? Are we gonna tell Annabelle, Annabelle, your mom is not the same as us. We are special and she's not. Your mom is probably not understanding our unique identity as Seventh-day Adventists who believes in a Sabbath because she is not part of our, our, our church. But I learned to embrace the diversity and I learned to listen uh, because I realized that just because my wife did not grow up in Seventh-day Adventist, it doesn't mean that she is wrong and we are right. 
I think that ability to understand where someone came from and the ability to understand and listen to their story is what makes our relationship work. And I am grateful because of that uniqueness in our family that we are able to have that type of conversations without saying we are special because every single one of these family members grew up in a seven day Adventist family. But we can say, hey, one of us, you know, your mom, my wife, was not Seventh-day Adventist, but now she is. But at the same time, we cannot be proud, but we should be serving others and we should be able to listen to what others have uh, to say uh, to us. So that, that was my experience with my, my daughter, Annabelle, Trevin. Yeah, this is a really tough issue, isn't it? I mean, there's no easy answer to this and I don't wanna pretend as though we are gonna solve all of our problems here today. Um, I'm hoping that this sort of begins to get other people thinking uh, along these lines and, and in these ways. And I think there, you know, there are a couple things that I, that I think about when I think about this in terms of maybe where we could begin to, to start to think in new ways and begin to kind of process this in, in maybe a new way and maybe a more helpful way. Um, and one of those things you just mentioned, Sam, is the idea of listening. Um, you know, this idea that um, we can be proud of who we are and what we believe, but we always have to be willing to listen to other people, that we don't have all the answers, that we don't, uh, you know, have the stranglehold on truth or the best way or the right way, uh, but that a listening spirit, uh, a remnant idea, a, a remnant people that says, hey, we really believe um, God has revealed some beautiful things to us. Uh, but even still, we want to listen. We know there's more to learn. We know there's more to grow. And uh, we're going to keep listening. And if, if we expect you to listen to us, we have to be willing to listen to you too. It's only fair that this is a two-way street and a two-way process. And it seems to me that if we can embrace that notion, the idea of listening as a key value of the remnant of feeling special, of feeling unique while not diminishing other people, it seems like listening would be one of those core practices that would be important for us to live in our daily lives. Amen. Sam, what about um, the notion of power? We, we've talked uh, a little bit about this. Just so everybody knows, I, um, I've cheated on this sermon. Uh, I, I studied the text with the parent Sabbath school class uh, last week and I got their ideas, and so uh, I totally cheated on this. And so I know Sam has uh, some great concepts and some great ideas about this notion of humility and sort of how we wrestle and how we deal with uh, sort of power when it comes to this uh, topic. Will you talk about that a little bit, Sam? Yes, Trevin, thank you. When you talk about the power and influence, it reminds me of the story when Jesus walks into the temple courts, and he was angry simply because the high priests is using their power and influence in a very negative way. The high priest colluded with the money exchange uh, people and the merchants in order to take advantage of the poor people. So it is a networking or a partnership where these uh, people are working together to sell a product, so, so to speak, and charge a high fee you know, for the poor people to purchase a dough, for example, in order for them you know, to sacrifice that at the church. This is not right, simply because uh, the high priest should have realized that their job and their responsibility is to serve. Yes, they do have the power, that, but they should have used their power to serve 
people, especially those who are in need. But the fact of the matter is they use their power and influence to build personal wealth. I work for a bank. I don't think there is anything wrong to build personal wealth as long as you do it in the right way. But if you do it by taking advantage of these poor people like the temple courts, I completely disagree with that. And I am glad that Jesus stepped into the temple court and said, enough of this. We cannot continue doing this simply because this is not the right thing to do. And I can imagine if I am one of those people, those poor people who could not afford to purchase anything, I would look at him and say, that's what I need. That's what I want to see from a high priest. You know, someone who's willing to step in and step forward and say, I'm here to serve you and I'm going to use my power to help you not to take advantage of you. Yeah, I think that's a, a powerful concept and a powerful way to think about the influence and the power we do have um, in whatever circle we're in. Um, you know, some, in some places we, we have very little power. In other places, we have a great deal of power and, and influence. And how do we treat people when we are in those places where we have great power, where we have great influence? And are we using that to lift up those who are, who are downtrodden? Do we, do we use that to lift up those who are different than us? Or do we use it to sort of build our own kingdoms even greater? And it seems to me that the disciples were more interested in building their kingdom up of maintaining their unique and their special status, as opposed to saying, wow, what a privilege and what an honor Jesus has given us for us to be part of the 12 that are going around with him every day for, for years. And we're seeing this firsthand, like, wow, this is amazing. Like, how can we, I want other people to experience this too. This is awesome. Instead, they were like, hey, you're not part of us. Why are you doing good stuff for other people? Like, how are you doing miracles? How are you casting out demons? It's like, it's just the complete wrong mindset and the completely wrong mentality um, that they had. And one that I think us today in our context, thinking about Adventism, thinking about the remnant, we have to avoid that um, as well, because that is, it, it's just falling right back into the same trap um, that the disciples were, had fallen into in their day. We can't do that today either. Yep, yep. Yep, I agree. I remember um, growing up, you hear a lot of, I mean, you go on mission trips and you're you know, part of churches who send groups as mission trips. And I remember being surprised to hear other churches also sent groups on mission trips. And I remember thinking, what? <laughs> they do good too? How is that? I thought we were the, I mean, you're, you're familiar with what you grow up with, but it's so true. I think our mission um, is to care for those who are in need of assistance and help and um, to be able to acknowledge that other churches, you know, have similar mindsets and, and, and to learn from them as well, to hear their experiences as they minister to, to other people and to share our own with them and to recognize, you know, the ministry that they have is a beautiful one too. And it isn't just something that we have, we have the corner on. We've got the, we're the only ones who <clears throat> are the arms and, and are the hands and feet of Jesus that his hands and feet can take on. Um, yeah. Or yeah. Represented by many other people, not just people in the Adventist uh, church. 
Thank you, Nikki and Sam, for joining me in that conversation. And I hope, for those of you watching it, created some new thoughts and ideas for you. And I would love to hear what you think about what we were just discussing and how we might live in this new way. There's one final thing as we close here today that I think we need to learn how to do and embrace if we're gonna live in this new mindset and in this new way. And that is we celebrate the expanse of God's us. God's us is expansive, it is wide, it is huge. We tend to limit our us's, we tend to limit those who can be part of our inner groups, but God's us is expansive. We see that in our text today, but we also see it in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we often get caught up in all the beasts and all the imagery, but the heart of Revelation is found in the scenes of heavenly worship. And in chapter seven, there's an amazing scene where John sees those who are redeemed worshiping before the throne and before the Lamb. And John says that this, there is this great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. This tells me two things about God's us. Number one, it's so great no one can count it. It's so massive. It's uncountable. And then secondly, God's us includes people from all over the world, every nation, tribe, people, and language. It is a diverse group. It seems to me that if we want heaven to be our home, if if that's our ultimate goal, that we need to start living based on heaven's principles here today. So if God's us includes this vast expanse of people, we need to embrace that in our lives as well. We need to get away from the disciples' mentality, the competition and the limited resources, and instead move to embracing collaboration and the abundance of God's grace. We serve together. We embrace our identity while not diminishing those who are different than us, and we celebrate the expanse of God's us. Will you join me in committing to this new way of life? to embracing how wonderful and great God's grace and love is for each one of us and get rid of the need and desire to exclude and instead seek to include as many people as we possibly can. That is my desire and that is my goal and I hope you will join me in learning this new way of life.